sermon series that we're beginning is Developing an Attitude of Gratitude. Uh, of course, we are some three weeks or a little more away from Thanksgiving. We think about giving thanks. And so we're going to take three sermons and we're going to focus on a particular aspect. Today we're talking about the right response to reward, and we're looking at Jonah chapter 2. And we're focusing on being grateful and showing gratitude for God for what He has done for us. And we'll take a couple other aspects the next two Sundays and look at them. Before we get to chapter 2 of Jonah, I want to recount to you Jonah chapter 1. It's a story that should be very familiar to all of us. Jonah, of course, was from a town called Gath-Heber around Nazareth, son of a Mittai, it tells us. We don't know much more about Jonah. He was a prophet of God. God called him and said, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach to them. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. He didn't like the Ninevites. He didn't care if they did live apart from God and, and, and bear his God's eternal punishment. So Nineveh, or so Jonah decided he'd go the other way. Nineveh was of him, and it was about 750 miles. It was not just going to the next town. Back in those days, especially, it would have been a long journey to go to Nineveh. If you know your geography at all, in Iraq, there's a town called Mosul, is the current name. That is about where Nineveh is, and there's an, supposed to be an existing wall of Nineveh. So he's supposed to go from northern kingdom, the northern part of Israel, over to Iraq, modern-day Iraq, and preach to them. But instead of doing that, he says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to obey God. I'm going to run far as I can away from God and not do this. And so he went to the little port of Joppa. There he booked passage on a ship, and it says they set sail for Tarshish. We're not 100% sure where Tarshish is. There's a Latin word that applies to it, Tarshesis, and I butcher that. But we think it was the southeast corner of southern, southeast corner of Spain is where he was going. On the other side of the Mediterranean is where he intended to go, probably for them, represented the end of the earth. Well, he wasn't going to get away from God. God caused a great storm to come on that ship, a storm that they worried was going to sink the ship. The sailors were praying to their gods. They were throwing everything off they can to try to make it light and buoyant. And where's Jonah? Jonah's down in the hold, sound asleep. It's awful sometimes how we can be in such grave sin and we sleep like a baby when we should be in fear of the Lord. But Jonah was asleep. The captain came down, what are you doing? Get up, pray to your God that we might be saved. Jonah had already told him. He was up front with him. He said, I'm, I'm not doing what God said. I'm my God said. I'm, I'm running away. So they asked Jonah and said, well, what can, what can we do? How can we appease your God? And he said, well, throw me overboard. 
And it, it's really striking to me, these sailors, sailors are kind of known for being a little crusty, being a little rough. They're hard-working men. But these were men with a conscience, men of character, and they refused to throw Joan overboard. They wouldn't do that. So they kept fighting the storm. They kept trying to lighten it. And finally, Jonah said, you need to throw me overboard. And once they relented to that, then they also says they prayed to God and said, please do not hold his death against us. Do not judge us for this act. And they threw Jonah overboard. And the Bible tells us the seas instantly went calm. All of us probably grew up with the story of Jonah and the whale. We were taught about it being a big whale. Probably wasn't a whale. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says a great fish. And anybody that knows their biology knows that a whale is not a fish, is it? It's a mammal. But I don't think that's the sticking point here. We're told it was a great fish. When I was a boy down in high school in Fort Walton Beach, Florida, a lot of fishing ships went out, fishing boats, and they would catch some mighty fish. And I remember a pastor there talking about this very subject, that we don't know what fish it was, but that it might have been a grouper. Groupers can grow to be very large. This is one here. And you can kind of get a sense, that's a grouper. You see the man, that is a, this, what I read when I found that picture, that's about a 500 pound grouper. The biggest one caught and brought in, well up, that's changed now, but the, was 680 pounds and 7 feet long. They've since captured a grouper that was 880 pounds and eight feet long. But some think it possibly could be a grouper. This is that same grouper showing the, his mouth open. And you can see it's just big and wide open. And the grouper, the way they hunt, is they, they don't grab a fish, bite it, and bite off a chunk. They swallow it whole. And with that big old mouth and the gills, they're able to open that mouth and it actually forms a vacuum and draws their prey in. And so I, we don't know what kind of fish it was. The Bible doesn't tell us. It's not important to the story, but it, it could have been a grouper. And one of the things I'll remind you, because we also, whenever we think of these stories, whenever we read them, we personify them. That means we take what we know and who we are and apply them to the story. But back in those days, the men weren't six feet tall, five feet ten. They didn't weigh 200 pounds or whatever. They were maybe less than four, five feet tall and 100 pounds or so. Sue and I years ago took a tour to uh, Europe and they would show us some of the buildings dating back five, six hundred years. And we would have to duck to walk into them because the doorway was so low. They weren't six foot eight doorways like we have now. So, you know, when you combine those, you take a, a fish like this with a big old gullet like that. 
and you take a smaller person, it's a little easier to believe about someone being swallowed. But the Bible tells us that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish, and three days after that, Jonah finally decides to repent. I hope it wouldn't take me three days in the stomach of a fish to repent. I'd hope I'd be a little quicker than that. But anyway, Jonah was in there three days and three nights. And of course, that is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection. But he finally did repent. And when he did, when he uh, confessed before the Lord, the Lord told the fish to spit him out. And the fish did spit him out on dry land. And I also suspect it's not in the scripture, so can't take it as gospel truth. I bet the first thing Jonah did was go find a shower and clean up. That had to be nasty being in there with all the other food and all the other stuff. So I really bet his first thing was taking a shower and getting cleaned up. But after he did that, he gives a prayer to God, and that's in chapter 2. And let's read chapter 2. It says, From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God, and he said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the sea, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet, I will look again towards your holy temple. Now let me pause there for a minute. Jonah thought he was going to die. And when he talks about the holy temple, he's talking about heaven. He knew he was a righteous person. He knew the promise that one day a righteous person would be united with God. So he's, he, he's down sinking into the sea, thinking he's going to die. But he has that assurance, that faith that he's going to see God in his holy temple. Verse 5, The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head, to the roots of the mountains I sank down, meaning to the depths of the sea. The earth beneath barred me in forever, but you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. The pit, of course, is description for death. They often talk about the pit. It's akin to Sheol, you've heard that word, which is referred to as the pit. Verse 7, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose up to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs, but I, with a thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good, salvation comes from the Lord. When my life was ebbing away. You know, it's a shame so much in life we have to be at the end of our rope to decide maybe turning to God's the way we ought to go. Wisdom would have us turning to Him right at the very start and always. But He says, I remembered you. My prayer rose again to your holy temple, thinking about heaven. And then this is a tremendous prophecy here, the prophet speaking. Those who cling to worthless idols. We have idols in our life. 
They may not be a statue that's sitting on a shelf, but idols or anything that we place in front of God that we revere, that we cherish, that we pursue more than God. Finances, power, popularity, uh, a sports trophy. It can be anything that we give ourselves over to. And Jonah said, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And that's true. We have a great grace available to us from our Father, our Heavenly Father. He wants to bestow good on us. He wants to make us, uh, bring us into his, his, his home as a child of the King. Like the prodigal son, he wants to put a robe on our back, a ring on our hand, and have a feast. He wants to bestow that grace on us. But when we pursue those worthless idols, that can do nothing for us. Logically, it's easy for us to see and to think, how on earth could you take a, a, a tree trunk, carve it into some likeness, and worship it like you made it? How can it be your God to worship you? But we do. So he says, but I, I'm not going to forfeit your grace, God. I'm going to sing a song of thanksgiving. That was his response. His reward was God didn't kill him. God didn't have to go after him. When Jonah took off for Tarshish, God could have said, I made you, I made plenty others, I'll find another one. You go on. When Jonah was thrown overboard and sinking into the sea, God could have said, you got what you deserved. But God pursued him. God had a task for him, a job for him, and he must have known Jonah was good at what he did. I'm sure God knew that. Jonah must have been good at what he did. He eventually did go to Nineveh, and when he preached, they repented up even to the king all the way down and turned their lives over to God. And he hated them. He didn't want them to. So that must have been a pretty powerful sermon that he delivered, not wanting them to accept it as truth. So God could have said, that's okay, I, I I can get somebody else, but God pursued him. Very often in life, God continues to pursue us. He's made us for his glory, for his honor. He's given us abilities. He's given us uh, uh, parts of uh, gifts of his Holy Spirit to enable us to do a particular task, a task that no one else can do. And he calls us to that, and he will pursue us and come after us and encourage us and challenge us and sometimes withhold blessings so that we'll get to the point of Jonah and say, Father, I repent. I'll do what you tell me to do. Jonah went through all that, and at the end, he didn't hold bitterness against God. He didn't resent Him. He said, I will sing a song of thanksgiving. You saved me from the pit. He knew he didn't have to. But Jonah also knew it didn't end there with just saying, thanks God. Saying that can be cheap. It's easy to say, thank you. Jonah took that other step and said, I'm going to do what you've told me to do. I'm going to obey. I'm going to listen now. And I'm going to go to Nineveh. That was the right response to reward. 
that is our lesson as we look towards God. Too often we're too proud to recognize God's goodness to us. For some reason, I think society today, we've gotten to the point that we think being grateful, saying thank you, is beneath us, shows weakness. I had a professor when I was at music school that, that taught to never apologize. He was kind of like Gibbs. Don't ever say you're sorry. That's not good advice. There's a time you need to say that. If you mess up, fess up. But we can be too proud. And even with our salvation, we do not give God the honor He deserves. We somehow think that we have brought it for ourselves, that we are worthy of it, that we have earned it, that, well, we're just a good enough guy. We think we took the initiative to come to Him and accept Him. We think we deserve His goodness and love. And so our salvation is just accepting the gift that we so richly deserve. This attitude leads to a life of believing as we continue that we're entitled to God's blessings. And it, it can lead us in our prayers to thinking it's just some kind of an incantation we've got to say to get God to act on our behalf. That we're manipulating Him to come to our rescue through our many prayers or our gifts or our attendance. We become entitled in that thought. We think we deserve the rewards God sends our way, but we cannot be more wrong. God's Word teaches us that because of Adam and Eve's sin, the spirit of every man and woman is dead. And I'm sure most of us here today have been to a funeral. You've been in the presence of a dead person. I've done many funerals, of course. Years ago, my stepfather, man my mom married after my dad passed away, was uh, seriously ill, was in the hospital at Eglin Air Force Base. His children could not be there, and so mom had asked some of us to take turns being in the hospital. And it fell, and while I was sitting there in the room, he was uh, in a coma or asleep. He wasn't aware of me. He wasn't aware of what was going on. That all of a sudden I'm sitting there, and nurses and doctors come rushing in. His monitors had gone off. His heart had quit, and they're doing all they're supposed to do. He had died, and he was totally unresponsive to anything they said or did. I don't think any of us have been to a funeral, and somebody's saying something, and the dead person sits up and says, No, that's not right. Tell it different. They're irresponsive, and so we and our death of our spirit are irresponsive to God. If it were not for Him coming and quickening us of sparking our spirit awake long enough to get to know Him, to hear Him, we would stay in our spiritual death. We have in Romans 4.17, the Apostle Paul Wrote, I've got it in two translations. The first one's the NIV, says, God who gives life to the dead. 
And, and it takes a maturity in Christ to understand he's not talking about this physical body. That was Satan's part of Satan's lie to Adam and Eve when Eve said, no, we're not supposed to eat the tree. And Satan says, you shall not surely die. He's playing with words. God wasn't talking about the body dying. He was talking about the spirit dying. God who gives life to the dead, spirit, or quickeneth the dead. God quickens us. He brings us to a life enough to be able to respond to the gospel. He brings somebody in our life. It could be a mom or dad, a pastor, a deacon, a Sunday school teacher. On and on. It can be a friend. It can be just reading the word on our own that his truth comes and seeps into our soul and we realize that we're separated from him because of our sin and we accept Jesus Christ and the work that he did on our behalf. But that would not happen if God had not quickened us from the dead to make himself aware to us. We should be totally, eternally, and completely grateful to him that we have this eternal life, that we have this hope of a life in heaven. It is not of our works. It is not of our doing. We cannot boast about what we did in our salvation. We would not come were it not for his bidding. So next, just as Jonah did, once we've come to that understanding, once we humble ourselves, realizing we didn't have the power to do what God commanded to do, we still don't. Our humility then responds by being grateful to God for making us alive so that we could hear and accept His free gift of salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's why we give Him the glory, the praise, the honor. That's why we sing the song, So what a, a, a worm am I at the cross. We're not being self-debasing. It's not that we have a low self-esteem. It's that we've come to the place to realize that we are nothing apart from God. And were it not for His saving grace, His mercy, we would be lost in our sin forever. The right response then is just as Jonah did, that we vow to obey God. We live according to His purpose. We are rewarded for responding to the good news of Jesus Christ and accepting Him as Savior with that indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That is a gift given to us that seals us unto that day of redemption. We are saved from eternal death. Separation from God. That is the right response to our reward, gratitude to God. As I said, Jonah hated the Ninevites. He knew if they repented, God in His mercy would forgive them. He knew God would spare them if they accepted the truth about Him. God cares about Jonah. He cares about the Ninevites. He tried to teach Jonah a lesson in his hatred. Chapter 4 of the book. It's just four chapters, easy to read. Hope you'll read the whole book. Jonah's sitting out on the outskirts of Nineveh, and he's mad. He's grousing. He's bitter because they've responded and God spared their lives. He's out in the hot sun. So God tries to teach him something. He has a big vine grow up that gives him shade. And he's happy for the shade. It made a difference. 
The next day a worm came and ate that vine. And Jonah's bitterness came out again. He was bitter that the vine went away. And God said, what is this? You're, you're concerned about the vine? Jonah says, well, yeah. It helped me be cooler. It, it was nice. And God makes the point says, Jonah, you're concerned about that vine and you did nothing to grow it. You did nothing to make it happen. You had no involvement in that. I did that for you. He said, there's 120,000 Ninevites. They don't know their right hand from their left. Should I not be concerned for them? God is concerned about all of His people. He's concerned about all those who reject Him, who run from Him, who don't want anything to do with Him. He wants them to come to a knowledge of Him. He wants to bestow His grace upon them. And He'll do it. He quickens them. He makes them aware. But He needs messengers like Jonah to go and tell them. Sometimes it means telling people we don't particularly like, that we don't want anything to do with. They're different from us. They, they do different things. But God calls us to take them to the message. Take the gospel to them. He's brought this local body of believers to do that mission in Campbellsburg Baptist Church. We're not the Lone Rangers. There's another body over here. There's one up the street. There's one up this street. There's others around us. We're all engaged in this challenge to bring our world to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But he's brought us to that person, to that challenge. So a question comes in our gratitude as we stop on this Thanksgiving, this first Sunday of Thanksgiving month. And as I lead us in giving gratitude for God, and I hope that through that song and through the communion, that was part of what was in your heart, is thanking God for your salvation. Thanking God for His role in your life, how He's met your prayers, being grateful to Him. And so we now come to this place of how will we respond. See, that's always where the rubber meets the road. Not how that person's going to do. They need to do better. What do I need to do, God? How do I need to respond? Will we hate sinners so much that we'd rather die than see them come to life? Or will we love them as Christ has loved us? Will we do what is necessary to tell them the good news of Jesus Christ? Do you know one reason the Jews hated Jesus so much? Because he did things different. They had set up all these rules about how people were supposed to worship. About, uh, and they, they became trivial and silly. They became oppressive to the people. And when Jesus came, he wouldn't play their game. He, he ate with sinners. He talked to the Samaritans. He went to people that were outcast and rejected by the people of the Jewish faith in that day. Because he loves everyone, wants everyone. So Jesus, one reason they came against him so much was he wouldn't do religion like they were doing. He, of course, did it the way God intended, the way we should do. 
John writes in 1 John 4, 19, We love because He first loved us. I love others not because I particularly like them. I used to have a pastor once. He told his, he said he'd tell his wife, I love you, but I don't like you very much. Took me a few times hearing that before I finally got what he was talking about. We're to love those that are unlovely to us because he loved us. If we continue on in John, John writes, whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. Pretty sure. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. And I'll remind you of the parable of the Good Samaritan where Jesus asked, who is your neighbor? And it's those around you. It's not just family. We've entered the month of Thanksgiving. So will we give thanks to God and like Jonah, promise to fulfill our vows, our, our duty to Him? Will you give thanks for those who have gone before? Will you give thanks to those around you who help you and support you? Will you have an attitude of gratitude? Hemingway, who was no follower of God, wrote the book, No Man is an Island. And that's true. We're the sum total of all the people who have had an impact on our lives. After Thanksgiving, we enter the Christmas season. That Christmas time of celebrating God's gift to us in the small child. One way we do that, we give gifts to others. We show our love for others by a gift. And currently we're in this drive I talked about earlier to give gifts to children around the world, Operation Christmas Child. So I hope today that that'll be a first step we take on our way out is to grab several boxes to go to the store to get those items to give our gift to God knowing we're never going to see anything back from it. That child doesn't know who we are. They can't write us a thank you note. They can't send us a present. They can't come say thank you. That's not the point. We're being good to them out of the love of Jesus Christ. So what will you give God for Christmas? How about re-gifting yourself by a life of obedience and deeper devotion to Him? Gratitude and giving. These are the hallmarks of a devoted life before God, and they are the right response to reward. Mm-hmm.